of Oakland, California, epic recording artist, Tower of Power. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Path to Pro Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Hogan. On today's show, we'll be joined by former MLS Defender of the Year and 2006 World Cup veteran, Jimmy Conrad. So let's get into it. Joining me on the phone is Jimmy Conrad. Jimmy, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. I'm breathing. So everything's downhill after that, my friend. Awesome. Uh, can you start by about taking us back to your earliest memories in soccer? What first got you into the game? So my grandfather was from Denmark, and obviously with some European roots, you know, the beautiful game is uh, pretty much part of their DNA over there. So he passed on this love for the game to me. We'd go outside and kick the ball in the backyard all the time. And I just had a really good start at an early age. Uh, I'm actually coaching my oldest daughter's under-12 rec team right now. It's the first time she ever wanted to play organized soccer. And I think what's really important is making sure that they enjoy it. And I try to tell them that if if you guys practice and you get better at this game, the more you're going to enjoy it. And so it's really important to kind of focus on the little things and to get to get at the basics. And then from there, you can start to add on those layers of tricks and moves and understanding tactics and all that good stuff. But really, it's important about planting that seed of having fun. And, and I think a lot of the fun comes from being good at the game. And my grandfather gave me that opportunity because we were touching the ball so much. So when I first started organized soccer in AYSO, Region 98, what's up, Region 98? Um, it was, it, I was, I had a good first year and I had a ton of fun. And that, and I had good coaches too along the way, which makes a big difference. So uh, once that, that seed was planted and, that, and I was relatively decent at it, uh, it just kind of set set me on this lifelong path of my love for the game. Awesome. Yeah, you talked about playing for some really good coaches. In in college, you went on to win the 1997 National Championship under Coach Ziggy Schmidt. Uh, what was that experience like? And what made that team special? And what made Coach Schmidt so special? Man, yeah, well, I don't know how, how far you want to strip this away. So I started at San Diego State first. Uh, my, dream, my dream school was UCLA. I grew up um, in Temple City, which is just outside of Pasadena, maybe about... 15 minutes away from the Rose Bowl and I used to play outside of the Rose Bowl and always wondered what it would be like to play inside and I got to have uh, that opportunity which is a big dream realized for me. So I started at San Diego State. Uh, the, the, I, I was the MVP of my high school team. Um, you know, I was always all league for a couple of years. I was captain. I did all the right things but I fell through the cracks. So I had an all-star high school all-star coach. It was like this kind of like what you guys do. You put together this combine. So they had all these top high school players playing this game. Some scouts came out from college and stuff, and, and no UCLA scouts were there. That was my dream school. because There was no MLS when I was a kid, which now makes me sound very old. Uh, so I'd go to UCLA. I'd watch them play. Brad Friedel was in goal. Kobe Jones was out on the field. Joe Maxmore. Ziggy Schmidt was the coach. I mean, that was it. And you get to see them, and they were up close, and they were these big, strong guys, and they were really good at what they did, and I wanted to be one of them. So when I... Uh, Got through high school, I got no love from UCLA and the, the high school coach. I had a really good game in this combine. He said, hey, I know the assistant, Todd Saldana. Uh, I'm going to just send him a call. So I ended up talking to Todd, and he's like, all right, well, why don't you um, apply for school? I'm like, I 100% already applied for school. And I had good SAT scores at a 3.8 GPA. Uh, I was in AP courses and everything, and I still didn't get in. And so they basically sent me a letter saying, well, you know, we will give you a chance to try out. 
if you get accepted, and I didn't get accepted. So I was gutted. But I wish I would have kept that letter, by the way. So I went to San Diego State for two years. Um, the coach just took me in, never seen me play, and my club coach got him to give me books. And uh, I was like, I'll take it. Whatever, Division One. I'm, I'm quote-unquote getting a partial scholarship. You know, that was like the way I handled this ego crush and be able to tell my friends I got basically $300 a year or whatever. So I went down there and did really well. Um, I, I, You know, I'm a center back by trade, as everybody knows now, but – but back then, I was the, the coach didn't trust his freshmen to play in any important positions. He never put any freshmen in the spine of a team. So you had to play either out wide or up top. And uh, I scored a couple goals. You know, I remember scoring a game winner in overtime, I think, against Cal, uh, which was a big deal because some girl I liked was in the stands watching. You know, so there's all these little things, these little life things that pop in that make you remember these things. And then the second year, I started to play defense, and I was better. And I ended up playing, what, 40 games in Division One. We weren't great. We were probably... 500 team, um, and we went up to UCLA, and we lost 4-0. They just smoked us. They were one of the top teams in the country at the time. But it was a big thrill to be able to play at, at UCLA's campus and play against these guys that I watched growing up, Biggie, you know. And uh, and then after my second year, we were all pretty disgruntled as a team. Like this coach was Chuck Clegg, who who I will have nothing but respect for for giving me the opportunity to play. But his his style of coaching. I felt like we'd already hit a ceiling after two years of being there. Like, we're not going to learn anything more from this guy. Um, and so we all were looking to transfer. I think we kind of got ourselves in a frenzy because there's a lot of us sophomores now that came in together as freshmen. And I just started calling Colts. I called Northridge. I called San Jose State. I called Irvine. I called uh, USC. I called everybody to see if they'd be interested in having me come over. My grades were good enough for me to transfer. So, so school's important to everybody because it does give you the opportunity to do other things that you want to do. Um, and I'll save you kind of all the details, but finally got to the point where Ziggy and I were on the phone. I walked into his office cold, let's say a month before that, because I wanted him to, I wanted him to see me. I wanted him to meet me in person. And I had to wait in his office for an hour and a half because I just went in there without telling him I was going. And it was really awkward, but I thought it was important for me to, to let him know that I cared, that I was passionate, that I was going to, that if he wanted to take a chance on me, I was committed to it. And a month later, he called and said, hey, listen, we can get you into school. Your grades are good enough. But I'm not going to give you any money. I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not guaranteeing you anything other than I give people that want to try out two days. I'm going to give you a week. And I was like, I'm in. So I gave up everything I had at San Diego State, starting job, went to play Division One, no problem, my whole career, and took this chance. And I guess my saving grace was, all right, if I, if I get into UCLA and I don't make the team, that'll be my redshirt year. And then I'll just work my ass off until – I'm so good that they can't deny me for the following year. I'll try to hop in on the spring ball and, and get to know the guys. I had all these other big plans if it didn't work out for me. Uh, but I made the team after a week. I was the first walk-on to start the first game of the season since Kobe Jones. And then um, from there, I was kind of in and out of the lineup for the next two years. And I played good sometimes, and then sometimes I didn't. But we were the number one team in the country my junior year, and we lost in the first round to Fullerton. And the guy that played in front of me, Taj Jenkins, was the number one draft pick in MLS. And it was just, it was a good experience for me, right? That transition year as you kind of take that step up to better players and play better competition. And then my senior year, I was slated to start and I just, I, I couldn't handle the pressure. I couldn't handle maybe all the expectation and everything that I'd built up over so many years. I'm finally here. I'm finally going to do it. So my, my performances were pretty uneven. But then as I started to spot start, I, I started to play better. Um, but then I would never get a sniff. All of a sudden, he'd go back to the guys that he recruited. And I wasn't one, some, I wasn't somebody he recruited. I came to him. So I always felt like he had a soft spot for the guys that maybe he promised the parents that they would play a certain number of games or whatever it may be. So 
fast forward to the beginning of the playoffs. I wasn't starting going into the playoffs. The guy that plays in front of me tore his knee five minutes in. So I had to play. He had no other options. And we only gave up one goal the rest of the way, and we won the national championship. And I was like, all right, man, I threw myself. Let's go. You know, and it was such a big thrill to, to be able to play for the, 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 the school that I always wanted to play for, the place that I always admired, the, the players and, and the program that Ziggy had built, the culture and the success, and now be a part of their history in a meaningful way. I mean, still, it's a big deal to me. Uh, but now there was that next step. MLS had started, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I'm on the top top team in the country. You know, we just wanted as high as you can go for our age group, for everything that we're doing. And there was five seniors that, that were going to go into the draft. And the other four guys got drafted, and I didn't. And that was heartbreaking for me. Uh, I didn't know what I had done or didn't do. You know, and there was no, you know, there's no pass to pro soccer combines that were happening. And MLS was very hard to get into because there were only 18 spots at the time. There were no, there was no other additional rules. You just had to be good enough to make the 18. Uh, or you, you weren't going to get a contract. So that, that made it really, really difficult. And, and in hindsight, uh, I'm glad I didn't get drafted because had I got drafted, I just would have sat on the bench. It would have been a lot of practicing. But I had the opportunity to go down and play in the A-League, which is now the USL, and the San Diego Flash. And, and at that time, I was training with the Galaxy. Like Ziggy felt, I think Ziggy felt pretty bad that I didn't get drafted. And he was working, he worked in the phone for me to just at least get in there and, and get seen by some of the pro coaches. And I did pretty well. I'll save you some of the heartbreak stories, uh, maybe for another question down the line of this interview. But, but ultimately, I found myself down in San Diego and I played 30 games in six months. And we played against Necoxa, we played against Toluca, we played against all these Liga MAQ teams that would come up and play us because we were close to the border. They obviously wanted to tap into the, their strong support in that community. And it was an incredible experience. And I can't emphasize enough that it shouldn't be considered a step down if you don't make that jump to MLS right away. Uh, there's so much value in getting games and learning how to become a professional. Because at that point, I had to go down. I left college where I was with my buddies. I was with my friends. I was, I was leaving a lot of success to like basically start from the bottom again. And I was sleeping on floors. I was making $800 a month. I was eating top ramen, and I loved it. Man, It's like my favorite year as a professional because you had to decide then whether you really wanted it or not. It wasn't about, you know, let's kind of relate it to today's things. It wasn't about getting a blue check mark next to your name, being verified or being famous or any of that crap. It's just because I wanted to prove that I could play and that I was a good player and that I love this game and I wanted to see how far I could go. And, and I took that opportunity. And at the end of that, uh, the coaches from San Jose saw me, invited me to play in a friendly. Uh, Joe Cannon, who also was my, on my team down there. He, he came up with me and we played in this game. Uh, we played, we had 10 days with the San Jose class at the time, now the earthquakes. And, uh, we did 10 days. I thought him and I both trained really well. We got 30 minutes in that game and they both offered us contracts, uh, the following season. And like that just took off from there. But again, I mean, if you want to look at my story, like it took me a while, like it did at UCLA to kind of warm up to this step up. I was doing enough to warrant being on the team, but, but to really shine, it took me three or four years before I started becoming like an MLS All-Star and MLS Defender of the Year and then finally get called into the national team. I got my first cap at age 28. Like everybody else gets caps at like 19 or 20, you know? And it took me eight to 10 years past that because I just kept trying to get better and better and better. And obviously I played a position as a defender where, you know, you get more cultured, you see more plays, you understand how to play and how to organize and how to lead, which I think just took me a while to really embrace uh, being that guy and having the, honestly, having the courage to step up to, to be that guy. 
because it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of accountability that you have to take into consideration when you, when you play a, a role in the spine of the team. Absolutely. So what do you think about, um, I guess you could say these are all small setbacks, but do you think that helped shape your work ethic and your drive and maybe turned out for the best in the long run, all these small setbacks along the way? No, no question. I think you, I think where I gained the advantage over some of my more talented teammates, frankly, was that because I had dealt with adversity, because I had had setbacks, I knew how to handle them. I learned how to cope. I learned how to fight through it. And I learned how to turn those into silver linings or into something positive as opposed to using those setbacks as excuses as to why I didn't make it. Because it would have been easy for me to be like, oh, well, I won the national championship, but MLS didn't want me right away. And I just didn't want to go through all the hard work to get back there, you know? Um, so, yeah, I had plenty of times where you could have raised my hand and said, yeah, I'm out. Like, this sucks. This hurts. My feelings are hurt. Uh, you know, nobody's holding my hand. But, but you realize quite quickly through all the setbacks that nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you anything. And I've learned that even more so in my, my second career because as I retired from playing, I thought, oh, man. I'm going to get a ton of jobs in soccer because I played in the World Cup and I did all these things. And look at all, look at this great story I have. And then you get out and you're like, yeah, that's great. Good for you. But I don't have any jobs for you. Like you have to go start from the bottom again. And that was a hard thing for me to, to kind of um, to understand and, and to take into consideration. Like, oh man, I got to do all this all over again. And then once I start to embrace kind of that mindset again, then and lost the sense of entitlement, which I think we can speak to a lot with regard to how this new culture and maybe social media has shaped a sense of entitlement and what people think they're owed and whatever. Like nobody owes you anything. And the sooner that you can accept that, then I think the sooner you start to work towards, all right, if nobody owes me anything, I'm going to go earn it. And when you embrace that mindset, um, it, it becomes a lot easier, I think, to get up and, and be motivated to prove people wrong. You talked a little bit about going up to San Jose and playing that game with Joe Cannon. You guys came together from the flash. What was that transition to Major League Soccer like? How excited were you? What were, what were the hardest things? Yeah, good question. I, I think the, the hardest thing was that I was, I was there. I made it. But then you're also learning quite quickly, and, and I probably should have spoke to this a little bit when I first joined the flash, that you're, you're moving on from somewhat of a bubble of in college or even with you know, even in the youth academy where you've grown up with these players that you're playing with, they're your friends. And when you take that step into a full professional rank, your teammates aren't necessarily your friends. And you're also competing with these guys to put food on the table. So you learn that if you start playing better than one of the older guys who's more established and been around and he's got a big contract and you're starting to show him up on on a more regular basis, it's going to put him in a tough spot. And more often than not, those older guys, well, I'll say more often than not, because there's a lot of cool older guys, and I tried to be one because I wasn't treated very well when I was a younger player. But I would get elbowed in the face. I would get two-footed from behind. Uh, I had no protection. And this guy would just try to hammer me every single uh, practice just to let me know that he was the guy and I wasn't the guy. And so uh, there was a lot of that, that that went through it. And as I mentioned before, playing on the team, there's only 18 spots. So the, the competition to get in the team was hard. And I think it, it leaning on the adversity of not having, you know, all of the setbacks that you mentioned really uh, made my resolve stronger. I would go work on my game in different ways. Um, I would do stuff on the side. You know, when I was down in San Diego, I would train with the team in the morning, but I knew that if I wanted to make that jump up, I had to do extra training in the afternoon. So I would play soccer tennis. I would 
go run on the beach. I would do all kinds of different stuff to, to try to get that advantage, right? You're all, everybody, once you kind of climb up the ladder, everybody starts to get pretty even in a lot of different ways. So how do you find those little things to gain an advantage, whether it be physical or mental or tactical or technical or whatever it is? You always have to keep pushing to find that angle uh, to get better. And if you're not, then somebody else is doing it. And for all the younger people that are listening to this or coaches that are coaching younger players, what I would do when I was about 15 or 16, and this is probably the best piece of advice I could give. Uh, I had a coach, my club coach, he knew Marcelo Balboa's dad. And at that point, Marcelo was still playing for the national team, and he played in two World Cups. And so his name is Louis Balboa. I'll never forget this. Louis Balboa comes over, and he basically doesn't have much of a spiel. He's like, all right, do you guys have any questions? And I raised one question. I was like, uh, raised my hand and I said, you know, what, what did Marcelo Balboa do to play in two World Cups and play for our national team. And Louis looks at me and he goes, oh, he just went out to the park and worked on his game two hours every day. And for me, that changed my whole mindset because I then knew that it was up to me to decide how good I was going to be. And that kind of gets back to what I was saying before about nobody owing you anything. Uh, nobody's going to make you better. You have to want it for yourself. Like I, you know, I run into parents that that want their players to be better than their kid, or want their kids to be like these top players. But you can sense that the kid doesn't want it. The player wants it more, or the parent wants it more. And that's not how it can be. It has to be the opposite. And and that was a big enlightening moment for me um, as I kind of went through my process. And then as you deal with these setbacks, you start to lean back on this good piece of advice that you've learned along the way about you know what it's going to take to be better. And so I would, I would always go out there and try to push myself to see how far I could go. And then all of a sudden I was like, man, I can't believe I'm with the national team. This is amazing. Uh, you just, you just kind of marvel at the whole process. Absolutely. And then, so with, with those teams, San Jose, I guess, early on your first year there, 2000 finished dead last of the league and you went on loan a couple of times and then it turned around in 2001, all of a sudden the MLS cup champions, uh, how special was that team, and what clicked from 2000 to 2001 that made that change? Yeah, great question. I, I think in 2000, our core players that ended up kind of spearheading the success that came from 2001, we were just a little bit younger. Uh, I think the, the alpha males that were leading the charge in 2000 uh, were, were aging, and it just wasn't the timing wasn't right yet. So once we transitioned from 2000 to 2001, uh, Lothar Osiander, who I love dearly, uh, he was my Project 40 coach. I did go out on loan with Project 40, and he took over for San Jose, and I had a really good relationship with him. I think he knew the game, and I, I don't think he gets the respect he deserves as a coach, but obviously getting last doesn't help that cause. Well, he uh, got fired, and they brought in Frank Gallup, who was an unproven coach at that time. And I think what Frank and the Don Kinnear came on as, 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 as his assistant. So you had a lot of, lot of people coming together at the right time that had a lot to prove. And... You know, Frank and Dom obviously wanted to prove their stripes as coaches, that they could do it and have success. You had me, you had Richard Mulrooney, Wade Barrett, uh, Joe Cannon. Now this would be our third year in the league, so we're kind of taking that step of we're ready now to take on more responsibility as players and to be uh, counted on more. And then on top of that, they added uh, Jeff Agus, you know, who was leaving, I think, D.C. United at the time, and, and he obviously wanted to play well because he was going to play in the 2002 World Cup. So his form was very important and having his leadership and his experience was very important for our younger team. Um, and then frankly, we won the, we won the Landon Donovan sweepstakes, you know, Landon 
came back from Bayer Leverkusen, and he was another person that was hungry. So our, all, our collective mentality was, was we were really all on the same page. And because the teams are only 18, dude, our practices were incredible. Because we had Ronnie Eklund, we had Manny Lagos, we had Ian Russell, uh, we had Dwayne De Rosario, who didn't even start for us. You know, he's going to go down as one of the best all-time players or finishers in, the, in MLS history. And he didn't even start for us, and he was so crafty because we had seen him before in an Open Cup. The prior, uh, he was with Richmond Kickers, and he just like juiced us up, like, "Who is this guy?" Uh, so it was cool that we signed him, and I'm, I've been friends with Dwayne for a long time, so I'm very excited for the career that he had. But yeah, we just had a, a nice collection of, of people from front to back, coaching staff and, and players that were all hungry to prove themselves. Whether they were, you know, with Goose, maybe he was trying to reprove himself, or Landon trying to prove that you know he could, he could be good. He didn't have to be in Germany to be a good player, and that all of us younger players were ready to go. And it wasn't hard jump on and then we went on some 17 game unbeaten streak and our confidence was sky high uh it was a really special season and you could sense it right from the beginning that there was this chemistry amongst the team and and that everybody was going to be supportive of each other and we we're all working towards the same thing there wasn't like there was any ego involved and for us that was for us i had been there for a few years it was nice to kind of shut that because we were really looking for that sense of community and to be of some be a part of something bigger than ourselves and you mentioned it there a little earlier. Is you've played for a lot of top coaches, whether it be Dig- Ziggy Schmidt, Yallop, Kinnear. But the one you mentioned there was Lothar. The, uh, he won the U.S. Open Cup, I guess, before Major League Soccer existed. Can you talk a little bit about him as a coach? Because he's, like you said in your response, that he's someone who doesn't get talked about enough. No, I don't think he does. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he was the coach of the L.A. Galaxy in 96, right? Was he not? And they had their, their team was killer, you know, and I think – I think what I really appreciated about him was he, that he didn't overcoach. You know, I, I think there's now a tendency, and I don't think this is a bad thing. I think this is a response to maybe not enough coaching when I was a kid or or that we needed uh, more instruction for our players. But there seems to be a tendency now when I go look around and watch a lot of stuff where the kids are being told what to do all the time without ever being uh, allowed to think for themselves or at least allowed to take what they're listening from you or hearing from you and then, and then applying it. But because we're telling them what to do all the time, they never get that opportunity. And I thought he was very good at just, just almost minimal coaching. You know, he would pick his spots to give instruction. He'd pick his spots to, you know, when to like, Hey, I can see what you're trying to do here, but maybe think about it like this next time, you know? Uh, and I really appreciate that style to a certain extent. I'm, I'm, I think I'm in the middle of him and, and overcoaching because uh, as I'm now doing my this rec team, I'm like, oh man, you guys have to do it like this. But actually, a good humbling experience for me to take on a, a rec team for a lot of girls I've never played before. But um, I really appreciated his style, uh, his man management skills. I just thought he was easy to talk to. He's really funny, and and I thought Bruce Arena had this as well, where I, I feel like him and Lothar were both very good at knowing when to joke around with the, with the group and knowing when to, to keep it and make it serious. You know, and that, hey, hey, now it's time to concentrate. You know, we've had our fun. Now let's like buckle in and go. And and it's what's funny about that style is that there are moments in the game where you can't obviously rely on the coach for tactical changes, right? Maybe there's some things, but more often than not, you have to make or understand what's happening and, and adjust accordingly. And with with these guys or with this style, they kind of teach you that there's a switch. Like, all right, now we need to figure this out. Because there are going to be lulls in any half that you're playing where the other team's in control of the ball. And right now, now there's a switch. Now we have to get serious. And I think there's like a, a little bit of a subliminal, subconscious kind of stuff going on with that, 
hey, we need to know. We have to learn how to develop a switch. Um, you know, now we're now we're going to be jerks. Now we're going to win the ball high up the field. Or you know, and you have to figure out how to find that personality of your team and and, and teach the team that in some ways. So um, anyway, that might be taking it too far and too soccer nerdy for everybody. But uh, but I just felt like Lothar had that to a certain extent, as did Bruce. I didn't even mention Bruce and all those great coaches that you that you've played under. Um, then I guess after you you left San Jose, you went moved to KC. I guess a club you're a little bit more synonymous with, uh, and helped the team win the 2004 U.S. Open Cup, a tournament that's pretty special to the club as a whole. What did it mean to you to win it, and what are your thoughts on the U.S. Open Cup as a whole? Oh, dude, I love the Open Cup. I've always loved the Open Cup. I am still distraught that it's not a bigger competition in this country. You know, we talk about how the casual fans here you know they don't understand soccer or whatever and then we have a competition that's the oldest sporting competition in this country that is just like march madness uh and and we don't promote it at all and we don't do anything to hype up how special this tournament is uh and it's frightening and sad that that that's what's happening um because it's a it's a concept that i think most uh most fans whether they support soccer or not would understand uh the fact that you could have uh, amateur teams have a run at the title and, and that amateur teams have won it in the past over professional teams is incredible. And it's such a great history. It's a great tournament. I'm glad that I won one to say that I did. And, uh, I, I cherish my open cup trophy just is up there with everything else that I've won. And, uh, it was, it was special to do it. Now we had the benefit that year of playing most of our open cup games at home. Uh, I don't know if it still exists. I think it still does. It's, it's the team that's willing to pay to host the game is the one that gets to host it. Uh, I don't. I hope it's not like that because it feels a little shady that way. But um, but now we have the Open Cup final this week. I don't know when this podcast is going out, and but but I know Houston's playing Philadelphia, and it, it's it's great, and it's happening on a Wednesday night, and and I don't even know if people knew about it, and that's that's unfortunate because because there's so many great storylines, and I think it's a tournament that that almost every club touches, PDL. USL, uh, NASL, uh, any other acronyms we have in this country, like every every team has an option to play in this tournament. So it should be this exclusive thing uh, where everybody's involved and we're having this conversation and people in the soccer world should know that it's happening. And I, I guarantee you if I went down to my local, my local youth teams or even to the top clubs, where these players should know, they, they have no idea. And for me, that's a sad state of affairs and that has to change because the Open Cup is a trophy, just like the FA Cup is a trophy, or the Copa del Rey, or the DFB Pocal. Like th- those are meaningful trophies for those clubs when they win them, and they celebrate them like they should because they matter, they mean something. And I don't feel like the U.S. Open Cup gets the love that it deserves, and I hope that that changes in the future. Totally agree with that. It also gets you a spot in the Champions League in Concacaf as well, which is that that too. Which I'm glad they which I'm glad they did that, by the way, because it gives puts more weight on winning, you know, on winning it. But, I, I, again, the sad part is we're going to watch the game on Wednesday night. And there will probably not be that many people in the stands. And I just feel like how oh, it should be the opposite. Like, this is, this, is a, this is a cup final. You only get two finals in this country, potentially three to get to the CONCACAF Champions League final. And, and it probably has no recognition in the market that the game's being played in. And it's a shame. It's a real shame. And, and I know that I think U.S. soccer, or I don't know who is actually in charge of all that, but it seems like nobody's really spearheading that. And 
you know, of all the money we have in our U.S. soccer coffers, we should definitely de- designate some of it to go into marketing this this incredible and special tournament. Yeah, 100% agree. So I guess then just how special was that 2004 season for you in your career? Because you went on to win the MLS Defender of the Year and the Open Cup. Do you remember it as a special season that way? Or, or does the, I guess, losing an MLS Cup final override that? Oh, man, you had to bring that up. Yeah, it was um, it was a special season because... In 2003, which was my first year for Kansas City, when I when I had left the Earthquakes and at the end of 02 got traded, uh, I had started to really find like my best spot, which was as a center back, and I was starting to get really comfortable there and and to understand the role better and and it was great and I was like, all right, cool, I'm going to take that next step. And when I went to Kansas City. Well, we had this player named Preki on our team. Now, Preki is a legend, uh, an incredible guy, super competitor, so good uh, at the game. And and because he was in our midfield, Bob Gansler, who was another legendary coach that I got to play for, who was our 1990 World Cup coach, um, we played with two defensive midfielders so that Preki didn't have to defend, which means we played three in the back. And I wasn't the sweeper. I wasn't the guy in the middle. I was playing as one of the grunt markers. And I... I I know that the, the, the back three, let's say in the quote-unquote modern game, has changed quite a bit, and now you have wingers that kind of drop off and you're outside back. So if you're in a back three now, it's not as, you know, just follow this guy around. You know, don't let, you know, at that time Carlos Ruiz for the Galaxy. You're just going to mark him the whole time. You know, and if you have a chance to pass him on, you, you can maybe pass him on, but let's not leave any gaps. Just follow him. And for me, that was grunt work. And I understood why we did it, and it, it fits the, the personnel that we had on our team. But personally, I hated it. I didn't feel like I was growing as a player. I, I felt like I was just, I could be anybody at that point and just fall around on these other talented players and never really get to play. And uh, now there are obviously moments where I could open up and get the ball and, and get to be a soccer player. But more often than not, I was out there just, just banging and stuff. But I learned a lot in that. It was humbling, and I had to pay my dues and earn my respect with this team and this coach and to prove myself. So again, right, I had to find myself somewhat at the bottom and work my way into earning that respect. So at the preseason of 2004, uh, in one of the nastiest things I've ever seen, Preki broke his leg in a preseason game, and he was done. I mean, he was already older, maybe 37 or 38 at that point, and uh, he just never really recovered from that. So we lost him for pretty much the season. Um, and when he did come back, he just couldn't move the same way because it didn't heal right. I feel bad for him. It's not, you never want to see your greatest players you know, have to go out, on, not on their own terms in some way. And uh, he was kind of forced out into this injury. But it allowed us as a team to go back to a back four. So I got to play in the center, and, dude, I just took off. I didn't want to lose this opportunity. I knew that I wanted to be one of the best defenders in the league. I had wrote down a list, and I always did this before every season. I'd write down a list of goals that I thought were somewhat manageable, some some goals that were out of reach, and, and some goals that were dreams, pipe dreams, like playing for the national team or whatever it was. And... Uh, once I got to the back four and we played in the back four, I was never going to let go of that, that spot. I didn't want to play in the back three anymore. I wanted to be the man. I wanted to be a rock in the back. And so I was so motivated to be awesome that season. And, and it led to us as a team uh, having the best defense in the league. Uh, I didn't get a demo defender of the year that year. I won it the following year. But we, we, we won Open Cup. We got to the final. We almost won the double. You know, we, we scored early in the game. We won so many games 1-0 that year. We scored five minutes into the MLS Cup. And I'm like, oh, my God, we got to hold on to a 1-0 lead for 85 minutes. This is going to be hard. And uh, we gave up three goals in 15 minutes. We fought back and made a 3-2, but we just couldn't find that third goal. 
Um, yeah, it was a good, exciting final, but uh, yeah, uh, it was unfortunate because we were so close to winning the double, which would have been very special. But it was a special season overall, and I think that core group of guys moved into 05, but the problem was because we had so much success, I, I got called into my first January camp of the national team at the end of that season. Um, Josh Wolf, Eddie Johnson, Kerry Zavagnin, I don't know if Eddie was with us yet, but but he was going to be with us. And we had a whole bunch of guys. And we just we got called into the Gold Cup the following summer, and it just really killed. We missed maybe ten to twelve league games last or the following year. I think we missed the playoffs too, because just so many of our guy top guys were gone with the national team, World Cup qualifiers, Gold Cup, and then the team never could get into a rhythm. And, and we missed on. I think we missed out on the playoffs by like one point. But if any of us had played any of those twelve games, we would have made the playoffs for sure. So that's just uh, some kind of the unfortunate part of the success that we had as a group. But that 04, that 04 team was very special. Yeah. So then you talked about that a little bit in 2005, getting your first, I guess, call-up and then your first appearance and first cap. Do you remember that uh, your debut, I believe it was against Cuba in the Gold Cup? Do you remember coming onto the field? Do you remember that moment? Oh, dude, of course. I mean, I, I uh, was super nervous. Um, I couldn't believe that I was going to be playing for the national team. I couldn't believe that my jersey was hanging, like a U.S. jersey with my name on the back. Uh, it was for a national team game. And, and I know Cuba isn't the most exciting opponent ever, but it was who we started with in the Gold Cup. And, and I was honored that Bruce trusted me to, to be a part of that team. We played three in the back, which is funny, but I played in the middle. I had Frankie Hayduk and Tony Santa on either side of me. and It was a little bit less of like of what I explained with Kansas City back in the day and a little bit more how it is now. Um, but... That was Clint Dempsey's first cap as well. We played in Seattle. I remember, you know, specifically Landon Donovan, who I played with in San Jose for many years, you know, being very supportive and being very like, you got this man and just trying to keep you pumped up to get through the nerves. But then once the game gets going, uh, I actually thought playing with the national team is easier than it is playing with your club team because everybody's so good at their job. You don't have to maybe do the little extra cover that you might have to do with your club team. Um, Everybody knows exactly what to do and how to do it, and that's why they're with the national team. And I always enjoyed uh, that because I'm like, oh, man, I can just concentrate on being as awesome as I need to be in my position. And everybody's going to be so awesome at theirs. And so that was always a fun thrill for me. But uh, it was what, what was actually funny about that game was we went down. We, we went down 1-0 18 minutes in. Like, Cuba scored an amazing goal. Like, just kind of a hat tip to him. Just like, good cross, good finish, good run. Uh, obviously, we could have defended it a lot better, but – but it was still a very good goal, and, and we Clint scored, I think, right before halftime, which gave us some confidence going into the locker room, and then we just steamrolled them. Uh, I think we won 4-1 at the end, but it was, it was a great experience. I'll never forget it, and uh, it was a big thrill. I think the biggest thrill for me about it was calling my, my wife and my parents after the game and my best friends. They were just like, hey, can you believe it? You know, because they had been with me from day one, and to see all the grinding and, and how hard I worked. Uh, dude, I actually get kind of emotional talking about it, but... Uh, uh, but yeah, it was a big thrill for me to make those calls and to talk to them about it and and to share that that experience with them in some way. That's amazing. And then I guess the next the next big step was getting called to the national team for the 2006 World Cup, kind of an accomplishment that a lot of players will consider the pinnacle of their career. Uh, do you can you recall the moment you found out from Bruce Arena and what was that whole 06 World Cup experience like for you? Oh, dude, yeah, of course. I remember all this stuff like it was yesterday. Um, so at that time, I didn't know for sure. I was on the bubble. I was a bubble guy. And uh, we had a couple friendlies leading up to the World Cup and the, the roster being named. One of them was in Germany. And at that time, I was struggling with some hernia issues. 
Um, and I was like holding off surgery because I like I wanted to make the team and then tell Bruce and Mooch Meyernick, who's the assistant, that that I was uh, that I was actually struggling with this. And we went into Germany, didn't say anything to anybody, and the team didn't play well in particular. But I didn't have a very good game. I wasn't as assertive. I felt a little gun shy. Um, and now that could be for a lot of reasons, mainly because we're playing against some excellent players and Philip Lom and Miroslav Klose and Michael Bollock and all these guys. But but also because I just I wasn't feeling like myself. So after the game, I had to kind of just face it up, face up to it, and just tell them what was going on with me. They were pretty disappointed that I would kind of roll myself out there anyway. And I like I just told them that I thought I needed to prove myself against one of the top countries in the world for you to consider me uh, for the World Cup. So I thought after that uh, I was going to be done. I thought. I thought that was it because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have that like game changing performance where like, Oh yeah, we got to take Jimmy for sure. I didn't lock it down. And I remember flying back with Brian Ching and we were both like, all right, well <laughs> we did the best we could. And we had a big laugh because we were just trying to deal with the emotion of it because it was, it was pretty, it was pretty hard. So at that point I went and got surgery. I was on the same page with them and they were considering me of course, and they came out and watched me play. So I got this controversial sports hernia surgery in Germany where uh, basically I think the woman clips the nerve. I, they don't even really tell you what they do, but I knew that they got you back in two weeks. And sports hernia surgeries are normally four to six week recoveries. And I didn't have the luxury of that because I didn't want to be ruled out for the team. So I'm like, I'm going to Germany. I'm getting this done. I'll pay for it myself. I don't care. So I went and got it. I got checked. And I actually, you have uh, bilateral. You have it on both sides. And we don't usually operate on people at the same time, like you have to get one done and then come back two weeks later and get the other one done. I'm like, that is absolutely not going to happen. I'm getting both right now. And so I was one of like two players out of thousands of thousands of people that they've seen that had both surgeries at the same time. And I woke up and I was a wreck. But, but two weeks later, I, I played and started against the New England Revolution. I scored the game-winning goal with Mooch Meyernick, um, uh in, in the stands watching me play. And it, I had done enough in that game to then say, all right, Jimmy looks healthy. And I guess that was enough then for them to be like, he's in. But they didn't tell me that. Um, before the, the Bruce went on SportsCenter and announced the roster, I didn't even know if I was on it. All, I heard my name through SportsCenter. That's, that's how I heard my name. There was no call. There was no email. There was nothing. But about an hour before that dropped, uh, I was, at this time, AOL Instant Messaging, AIMing with, uh, with Landon. And he sent me a note. He's like, hey, man, I got some great news. And I was like, oh, my God, he knows. He's the golden boy. He knows. And I'm like, yeah, what is it? He goes, ah, you know, you can save a bunch of money on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And I'm like, what the? That's so, you know how messed up that is? Dude? You know that I'm waiting to find out if I'm going to be on the team. I think he knew. He was just messing with me. But, um, but yeah, what a jerk, huh? Who does that? So uh, I found out through the TV, and, dude, it was the biggest thrill. Um, it, it was the, the culmination of, of a dream realized, obviously, a lot of hard work and perseverance and adversity and dealing through setbacks and a lot of days where you're not feeling good enough about yourself and you're lacking confidence, but you keep pushing anyway. Uh, days where you're like crying because, you know, you didn't make a team or the galaxy didn't want you or whatever it may be. You play for $800 a month. You slept on floors. Uh, you're doing scrap scraping and playing in as many games as possible, trying to get better every single day. And you're like, it was worth it. All of that was worth it. This moment made it worth it. So my wife and I went and celebrated. It was like the best walk ever to this restaurant that we like to go to, and and we couldn't believe it. It was a, it was unbelievable. And the, and then the following two weeks, because you wait after you get named on the list, you wait until you actually go in with the team. So you're like, it's like two or three games. You're like, dude, I just don't want to get hurt. So you're just like you play, you're playing 
one and two just getting that ball off your feet, man. You're not trying to get involved with anybody. It's really funny how that works. Um, and then you get in with the team, and it's the hardest month of training before the World Cup actually starts. You are killing yourself. You're doing fitness. Usually you don't do fitness, this type of fitness, in the middle of a season. And it was hardcore. And about two weeks into this, you're kind of looking around like, all right, it's cool that I made the World Cup team and I'm on the roster, but it would be awesome to play because you've done all this now, and now to just get a minute in a World Cup would be a really special experience. And uh, thankfully, I had that opportunity as well. But but it's funny, but you, you kind of go through these things that you've got to work through. Okay, name of the World Cup roster is awesome, but <laughs> there's always a but. You always want to take that next step. So So to be able to play was a big deal. Yeah, and then just to move on a little bit from your uh, playing career com- for a few questions on what you've done since is you kind of got into doing a lot of video content, doing some broadcasting, including covering last year's NASL final in San Francisco. I guess what got you into the broadcasting side of the game after your playing career? Yeah, good question. So when I was playing, uh, as you mentioned, that loan spell I took back in 2000, um, I went to Lech Poznan, which uh, is doing quite well now in, in the Polish league, but it was a Interesting experience. And so at that point, I was writing emails back to everybody about what was happening. Uh, this was dial-up, so emails would take 30 minutes to write and send, and it was a joke. But I got really frustrated, and I wrote this, like, scathing. After, like, five months in Poland, I just basically tore that country apart about how they're just stuck in the you know, Stone Ages with some of their stuff. It was really funny, and it was lighthearted. I wasn't being, trying to be mean, just more funny. And my agent took this email and started to pitch it to Sports Illustrated and ESPN, and I ended up getting a column. So I ended up writing a column for Sports Illustrated for four years, kind of on the perspective of, like, of the inside looking out. And uh, after four years, the editor who was in charge there moved to ESPN, so I followed him. I did five years there. And I think what I cultivated was not only, you know, I don't know much of a following, but, but I learned how to craft my voice and to learn how to tell a story and to learn how to be thoughtful about how I wanted the story to come across. And so I was already kind of gaining my media chops uh, through writing this column. And then as social media started to become more prevalent and, and more of a form of communication, how you express yourself, uh, that was a nice jump for me to get into that. But it was still pretty new and, and learning how to put yourself out there. Uh, I think we're all still learning in, in some ways. And so when, so when the opportunity came and I retired, I, I, I was in L.A. with Chivas, and I started doing Fox stuff. And got in the studio with Eric Winalda and Christopher Sullivan, and that was a good learning experience as well. But but again, it, it it just taught me that I needed to learn all over again. I needed to start from the bottom, and and that was a tough thing to to to, to embrace. I'm like, oh man, I got to do it all over again. And on top of that, I had to mourn the fact that I wasn't a player anymore. Something that had been my whole life, something that I identified with, and everybody that I knew identified me as. So. I was a pro athlete. I was a soccer player. I was whatever, whatever it was, it was always attached to being this type of guy. And I wasn't that person anymore. And I couldn't be, I couldn't go back. And I had, I was probably depressed for about a year, to be honest with you. Um, as I kind of worked through not being able to verbalize it, it's a lot easier to, to express this in hindsight. But, um, I did about six months with Fox and then I got this opportunity where YouTube put a hundred million dollars into a hundred channels back in 2012. And one of them was called kick TV and all soccer, all soccer thing. So they called me up to say, hey, we want you to be involved with this. I think your personality would be good. And I was like, all right, I'm not getting that, that many repetitions. And I think you and I can speak to how important repetition is to getting better at anything. And I need more reps and being on YouTube, uh, being in front of the camera an hour to two hours every day is just going to help me get better. And so I just took the, the chance with the family to New York. I took this opportunity. I thought it would last one year. It lasted five. 
uh, with regard to this particular adventure with Kick TV, and it was great. Um, and then about maybe six or seven or eight months into this Kick TV thing, we went to Poland and Ukraine for the Euros in 2012, and I had a blast. And it was all on camera. Like I got, I, I don't want to necessarily hype up getting drunk with fans, uh, but it was fun to to just be able to be a fan. And I think that was the most important part. Like I, I, I got, I hung out with Croatian fans before games. I came to my face like a checkered. I had uh, the checkered jersey. Uh, you know, I was in their section jumping around. It was a lot of fun. You know, and and I never got to enjoy that as a player. You, you never really allowed yourself to get there. So to be able to start to shed that identity of what I once was to, to what I'm going to be now, uh, that, that was like a watershed moment for me. And it also got me out of the studio. I was outside of experiencing things and seeing games, and it was a thrill. And from there, I started to take bigger steps forward towards, all right, this is pretty cool. I can get behind this. And I started to embrace it a little bit more and jump in with both feet. Whereas before, I was like, uh, I still had one foot in the player realm, and, and I had one foot that I kind of like this. But then I took that big step, and it, and it changed everything. And now, you know, as I've evolved, that was – you know, we're six, seven years into this kind of new adventure of, of making videos, which I do now. Um, and I work with a lot of brands, and I got to do a, a, so many incredible things because of you know this this kind of jumping in with both feet and going for it. Um, it it's been it's been a lot of fun, and, and I think it all links back to what I said before: was just kind of finding my own voice and, and and knowing who I am and what I'm about, and and ultimately it's just trying to be exclusive, trying to bring people in trying to show why the beautiful game is so special and and uh, why why I love it and hopefully you'll love it too. And on that, you one other thing on your social media is you really like interacting with fans, as I've noticed. And when you're traveling around, you like to set up these pickup games, I guess, to meet local fans and, I guess, play grassroots soccer, the you know, completely without organization, just for fun. What, what started this and why do you like doing it so much? Oh, good question. Yeah, I love the pickup games. So we first got it started... Almost inadvertently, uh, we were down in, at the World Cup in Brazil in 2014. And we just like, hey, let's go play on the beach, you know? And then all of a sudden, you just, obviously, you're in Brazil. There's a lot of people that are ready to step up and get off their towels and just start playing uh, soccer. So, you know, then, then they're like, oh, this is, this is cool. I think there's something here. And then as we started to travel more, we're like, hey, why don't we just do a pickup game? And who wants to play? And it just really started very uh, genuinely, uh, very organically. And it's become awesome, and it's 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 been built up in a way where when I was a player, we would do these autograph sessions where you know you stand or people would stand in the line, we'd be behind tables, we'd have an autograph card, we'd have maybe five to ten seconds of interaction with these people. You maybe make eye contact with them, sometimes you wouldn't, and it just felt for all the people that they spend their hard-earned money to come watch you play, uh, I just felt like they deserved more of your time. Um, and this was an opportunity because when, now that I'm quote unquote, a YouTuber, you know, there's all these YouTube meetups and I just started to learn the power of these and, and to be able to actually talk to your audience directly. I thought, why don't I just merge the two? I want to play. I love to play. I don't get enough of that competition anymore because I retired. Why don't we just get these people to come out? We'll have somewhat of a YouTube meetup and I get to actually interact with these people on a real level. Um, I get to have a conversation with them. Why do they love the game? Uh, why, why, you know, what, what gets them up in the morning and, and want to play? And it's, it's, it's been such a special experience. And I actually think that I get more out of it than maybe some of the players that come out. But on top of that, you know, I'll give pointers to people. I'm always making sure I'm the last person to leave. I want everybody to feel like they got a piece of my time and that's my attention. It's really important to me. Uh, if they have any questions about how to develop as a player, 
or or you know anything about whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm I try to be open to that, and I think that's what's cool about YouTube in general is because you talk to the camera, you, you're you're developing an audience that is listening to you directly. It's not like you watch on TV and you see you know the guys in suits that are talking to each other, and you're more of a fly on the wall. When you're on YouTube, you talk directly to your audience, and, and I think that's what makes it really unique. And that way, when I see people, they already feel like they know me. And that's a nice head start. I don't have to explain myself. They know that I'm I'm just about having fun and doing positive things, and they come out with the same type of spirit. And we have great great turnouts for these these pickup games. It's it's been it's been insane. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to continue to make these even bigger and better, and how we can touch more into the community. So, you know, for instance, um, I was going to do one. Well, I'm going to do one. I'll just let me say that now. It's going to happen at some point where we. Let's just say the pickup game is like a kind of the center of it. Well, can we bring bring food trucks to come around it? Can we get musical acts? You know, I wanted to do one where maybe we get like a special charity game that goes to a local charity. And then on top of that, I'd love to talk to Big Brothers Big Sisters to have those kids come out and be a part of it. Or maybe there's the ball kids that we have like an influencer game and then we can play against them and, and just create this really special, positive, you know, four or five hours for this community where, hey, let's do something fun today. Let's 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 give back. And and the pickup game at the at the core of it uh, is such a special. Uh, I don't even know the, the exact way to say it, but it's it, it's it's the nice genesis. It's a nice this nice seed that kind of can help everything else grow around it, like a mini Lollapalooza, as it were. And what I love about the game in general, I should probably start there, is that everybody that comes out, right? I have people from all different types of backgrounds, uh, different types of cultures, beliefs. Whatever it is, and everybody when they show up to these pickup games, they drop all that. Like none of that stuff matters. It's just like we're all out here to play and have some fun. If you have a good first touch, well, then you got to be on my team because I'm the bear. The bear's hungry. The bear likes to score. Let's go, you know. And it, and it, you just all these barriers that we talk about that that separate us just goes away, and then we're all in this together. And it's and honestly, it's you need to come out because it's it's one of the most special experiences. And, and any market I go into. It all feels the same way. Um, everybody just wants to go out and have a good time, and, and like I said before, be a part of something uh, bigger than themselves. Yeah, com- completely agree. It's, it sounds amazing. I definitely need to check it out next time. And then just to finish up here with a couple of questions with the, I guess, the new move. Um, you was recently announced that you're going to be the technical director with the Glens PDL team and an assistant coach. How did this move all come about? Well, actually, funny enough, I saw Mike McNeil who is the director of coaching for the Glens and has done an incredible job uh, building up that club to what it is today. Ramon, uh, who is the president of the club. I saw those guys. They were at uh, Keysar Pub in San Francisco watching the Champions League game, and I was out there doing my man-on-the-street stuff for being sports. And I had met McNeil before down in uh, Brazil, and Ramon worked for MLS. So we had crossed uh, paths uh, many, many times. But I hadn't seen him in a while, and they're like, hey, you should come out. We got this little PDL team or whatever, like, you should come watch. I'm like, hey, you know what? I don't want to watch. I want to coach, you know? Because uh, I have had this itch for a while now where, and, and maybe I'm being too candid here, but I feel like I'm going to age out on camera, like the clown nose and clown shoes stuff that I do. Uh, I don't know if you're going to want to see a 50-year-old guy doing that type of stuff anymore. I mean, I love Will Ferrell, but I love Will Ferrell 10 years ago. No, you know, that's really Will Ferrell trying to do the jokes now. So, so I can understand that that's coming. And, and plus, I am very passionate about the development of the game in this country. So to have an opportunity to not just talk about, like as a pundit, like, hey, this is what U.S. soccer should be doing. This is what these coaches should be doing. And this and that and the other. I'm just pointing my finger at what everybody else should be doing. I wanted to point the finger at myself. and like, how can I get involved? What can I do to make a difference? 
And now that I live in this area, all right, you know, I was joking about the Glens. And, and, well, to a certain extent, I was joking about coaching the team because I, I said it very seriously. But nobody takes me serious. And I think because that's the kind of a caricature I've created for myself in some ways. But, but so it, it got me into having a conversation with them and that I was being serious and that I am meaningful about what I want to do and I do want to make a difference. So we had a lot of great conversations. Uh, those guys see the, same, the game the same way that I do. I think it's a, it's a nice way for me to kind of enter into this side of the game and to start to be someone that's going to give back in a meaningful way. On top of that, these guys are already doing the right things. I'm, I'm not trying to come in and any, any revolutionizing the wheel. They, they are going in the right direction. I'm just trying to hop on and add another set of experience eyes to make it even better. Uh, and, and I'm really excited to, to be involved um, with, with the game in this country in a way where I can actually tangibly give back. Yeah, What excites you most, I guess, about getting involved with the development part of the game? I think there is a way for me to have a voice. I've seen some things, obviously. I, as you've mentioned, I, I've worked with a lot of great coaches. Now, obviously, you, as you do, even when you're doing podcast stuff, right? You hear other podcasts, you take bits and pieces, and you apply it to your own personality and what you're going to do and how you want to present yourself. I'm the same. So I've learned all these different things. I've been exposed to the game at the highest levels. I've played against some of the best players in the world, Messi, Zidane, Brazilian Ronaldo, and you learn so many little things about how the game should be played at the highest levels and what it's going to take to get there. And I think, as I've explained with my story, uh, I haven't taken the, the easiest path to have the success that I did. So uh, I feel like I have a lot to offer. Uh, on top of that, no matter what level, I feel like I can, I can relate to every single player. Right? I'm, I'm, I, I was the walk-on. Uh, I was the one that didn't get drafted. Uh, I was the one that didn't, didn't start for a long time. Uh, I was the one that was a spot starter, then I was a starter, and then, you know, all these, there's different mentalities for each of these steps. And then all of a sudden, I was the guy that everybody was gunning for, it's the defender of the year, and all-star, national team, and all that stuff. And, and I can relate to kind of the growth of that, and then getting married, and having kids, and, and everything that comes into that, and the pressure, and expectation, and dealing with failure, dealing with success, because we talk a lot about, you know, the technical, tactical, and physical side of the game. We don't talk about the mental so much. And so I think there's a lot of things where I can come help the Glens uh, or just in soccer in general about, you know, how to think about the game in a different way and how to get the most out of these players and try to help create an, a culture, which is already existing in a positive way with the Glens, but just to continue to enhance that uh, based on what I've done and what I've experienced. I guess then, then just to finish up here, what are your ultimate goals with the Glens going forward? And I guess your personal goals in soccer moving forward. Yeah, I would say total world domination. I think it's the easiest way to say it. No, uh, that's always my running joke. I would say that with the Glens, you know, they have a plan that is, is ambitious and it, and it shows growth. And, and now that I'm here in this market, I want to be a part of that. Uh, I have the same type of ambition and, and growth. I, I'm probably not going to put any labels on, on where I want to go and what I want to do. Exactly, because I still think it's, it's forming, and I think this is a great entry point, as I said before, about getting into the game and, and getting to see it behind the scenes. You know, I want to learn the business side of the game from my own. I want to learn more about the youth stuff from, from Mike. I want to I work with, with Javier, the, the current coach, you know, about you know, how he gets the most out of his players and all the experiences that he has. Because just because I had, a, a, let's say, a more distinguished playing career, uh, doesn't mean I'm going to go in and know everything. And so for me, I just want to get better and smarter about you know, how I can be better as a teacher at this point. 
Um, if, if I'm in a position of being able to teach and being able to pass on um, what I know and make the next generation of players 10 times better than I was, then mission accomplished. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jimmy. I really appreciate your time. Uh, look forward to seeing what you do with the Glens and look forward to coming out to a future pickup game. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. That was Jimmy Conrad, new technical director of the SF Glens PDL team. Thanks so much for joining us today. And until next time, keep supporting the beautiful.